Welcome to the Birth Warrior Podcast. In each episode, we feature the stories of birth warriors, women who have persevered to find their own truth in pregnancy and birth. As you hear these women share their stories of love, autonomy, connection, and power, it is our deepest wish that you will be inspired, empowered, and supported to find your own truth. We are honored these women have stepped forward to share their personal stories and to help us remember that we all have the power to choose what is right for us. The Birth Warrior Podcast is a presentation of the Indie Birth Association and is not intended to be medical advice. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Birth Warrior Podcast. I am Jaden Graham, your host, and on today's episode, we have Heather With her history as a gymnast, dancer, mover, and body worker, Heather assumed she had the tools for trusting and following her body's lead during birth. That was until she hit deeply embedded triggers from her history of child abuse that illuminated a messy entanglement of wounds and conditioning left by patriarchal and paternalistic systems. With a nearly 70-hour labor that ended in cesarean with her first babe, Heather set out on a healing and redemptive journey towards earning her VBAC stripes. What unfolded was a journey through struggling to find VBAC support, navigating crisis of confidence, her own and others, and ultimately fully trusting her babe, herself, and body as the holy trinity of birth template she needed. Six days of intermittent surges after waters released, Heather's baby was born. Little did she know this birth led to her own personal genesis. And a note to all listeners, as mentioned, this episode does discuss child and sexual abuse. So if this is a topic that may trigger something within yourself, you may choose to skip over this episode. Also, at the very end of this episode before the outro, Heather shares a beautiful and powerful poem she wrote herself called My Mighty Womb. So if you're still with us, please listen on after our conversation for that. And here is the episode. Thank you so much to Heather. And thank y'all so much for joining us today. Hi, Heather. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, happy to have you. So wherever you would like to begin your story, please share. Okay, wonderful. So... A little context of of my background. I am an American who grew up just outside of Washington, D.C., but I was inspired to move to Israel a decade ago. I followed my love of dance and and movement to, to Israel, to Tel Aviv. So I, for the last decade, I've been in this foreign environment, um, kind of exploring and, and finding my way. And I got pregnant back in 2018, the fall of 2018. This was after a miscarriage that I had had a year before. Um, and I, this was with my partner. We, we'd been together for a long time. He's, he's Israeli, classically Israeli, which we'll factor in later in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so got pregnant in 2018, in the fall of 2018. And um, went on to have uh, a really beautiful pregnancy. I want to like provide a little more context. I guess I should say that I've had two babes here in Israel. My 
first tooth with number two who was the VBAC. Um, so I got pregnant in 2018 and had a really, really beautiful, really powerful pregnancy experience. Um, throughout the entire time, I, I continued dancing uh, on an almost daily basis. I was really active and I felt just really strong in my body uh, until I hit week 28 of, of that pregnancy when I, I took the OGTT and got a diagnosis of, of, of the gestational diabetes, which I was convinced in my bones was a false positive. You know, that's a whole nother topic of conversation in terms of the emperor of new clothes the emperor with no clothes that, that the GD diagnosis is in and of itself. But mm -hmm. what happened with that GD diagnosis was that it became a trigger for much, much deeper stuff in my history. I have a, a, a history of sexual abuse from my childhood mm. between the ages of roughly anywhere from six months to about four years old. Um, I was sexually abused within the daycare setting where I grew up in, in Northern Virginia. And even though I've done maybe 20 years of, of consistent, really dedicated work, counseling, body work, you name it. Um, uh, this diagnosis was a huge trigger and all everything connected with what unfolded in the weeks following in that third trimester uh, became a metaphor for the abuse in spite of all the work that I had done. So even, even a simple visit to the doctor, to my OB was a trigger. So, um, that third trimester was really difficult and I'm convinced laid the groundwork for what was a really, really difficult, challenging birth. Mm. Um, my waters released at 41.5 with, with Soul. Our daughter's name is Soul. Mm -hmm. I labored at home for about 40 hours. Um, things were kind of slow to, to reach a, a, a rhythmic sort of sort of regularity, so to speak. Uh, and about 40 hours in, I reached a point where um, there was one surge on top of another. I wasn't getting, I was exhausted. I hadn't, I got to the point that I hadn't slept and we made the decision to go to the hospital. And long story short, I don't want this to be the emphasis of the story, but mm -hmm. long story short, after laboring at the hospital for 24 hours, um, and a series of more triggers unfolding, uh, it ended in a quote unquote emergency cesarean uh, due to her being asynclitic uh, and failure to progress combined with her decelerating fetal heart tones. Mm. These were the reasons that she offered, that they offered uh, in terms of going into the cesarean. So everything, there was so much about that birth that was really challenging because I thought I had done all I could to prepare for a positive birth experience, even amidst all the triggers I was hitting in that third trimester. I had a doula who I trusted and I thought would go to bat for me. Uh, I had a private midwife as well. Um, my partner and I had taken a hypnobirthing class together. So we had those tools readily available. So I thought because I was getting so triggered, I thought all this preparation I was doing would be enough to provide me with the, the groundwork for, for a positive experience. I ultimately had wanted to birth at home, but, but that wasn't meant to be because it makes the situation here in Israel is very, very difficult in terms of birthing at home. Uh, it's not a home birth friendly environment at all. 
both for first time mothers and, and for VBACs mm. as well. So um, because I had that GD diagnosis, because I was categorized as such, I lost the option to birth uh, at home, according to the Ministry of Health situation in Israel. Mm. So and I was hard pressed to find a midwife who would take me because of that label. Um, so that was, that was the first experience with, with my daughter, just a series of triggers and, and the narrative kind of, I told myself after the, that birth was, was that it could have, it could have been a, a traumatizing experience, but I didn't feel traumatized by it. That was the narrative I told myself for a year and a half after, after soul was born, but a year and a half after, um, I, I started I, I enrolled in the Spinning Babies World Confluence and I took their, their online confluence and I immersed myself in this content and I started to revisit the birth in a different way with, with the, all this other information. And I realized that I was traumatized, that I had PTSD from that experience and that I, I had post-traumatic anxiety for sure as well um as a result of that experience and kind of what had happened at the end of the pregnancy as well it was all this longer continuum so that's it was a year and a half after soul was was born that i really started to dive deeper and that narrative changed and i realized how wounded i was from my birth experience and how i didn't feel seen i hadn't felt seen i hadn't, hadn't felt felt heard i hadn't felt truly supported even though i thought i had created this this tribe of, of people to really support and, and advocate for me. But what ultimately happened, at least with that team of the doula and the midwife is when we got into that hospital setting, they were rendered completely powerless. They were both in their own trauma response and they, they couldn't effectively do anything to help me. Mm. Um, so so I had an asynclitic babe. I learned a lot about asynclitism after, after that experience with soul um, and started to understand that there was a lot more we could have potentially done to prevent that cesarean, a lot more, but I wasn't in an environment that was conducive to it. Mm -hmm. So fast forward after I, I start this, this process about a year and a half after soul is born and that continues for about six months that I'm in a pretty heavy process of revisiting the birth. I did some um, trauma processing with my doula around it and worked through a series of other channels, but all in an effort, one, to process the birth, help clear it out, but ultimately prepare for, for the, next, the next pregnancy. Mm -hmm. I was, um, you know, I'm 40, I, my VBAC, I was, I was 40 and I was 38 when I had soul. So I'm sensitive to, to that approaching sort of decade that I'm, I'm now in where, you know, it is what it is. So that work was really important to process that first birth and, and prepare for the, <clears throat> prepare for the VBAC. Um, so even before I got pregnant, um, I started, I started looking for midwifery support because I knew I wanted to birth at home. We had left Tel Aviv at that point. We had been living in Tel Aviv for eight years and made the decision to move into a, a smaller kind of village-like setting. So we were in a totally different environment and we are now in a private house. So it's, it's a perfect environment for birthing at home. Mm. And um, that was important. But again, with the, the restrictions here in Israel, courtesy of the Ministry of Health, um, 
no no midwife would really touch me with a 10-foot pole with the history that I had between the VBAC and the history of the GD, even though it was completely regulated. So even before I conceived, I was I was trying to find support. And I found a midwife who I loved and respected and had, you know, was well versed in in spinning babies and I just liked her vibe. So I had, eventually I had that confidence of knowing I had someone who could support me on that journey. Mm -hmm. So when I did conceive um, in March of of last year, I felt confident with that support I had lined up even before conceiving. Um, So this pregnancy started, it was again, a really beautiful process. And um, what ended up, happening is about two months in or three months in sometime in the first trimester I'm visiting with this midwife who I had I thought I had the assurance of working with who would work with me with the HBAC and um, she tells me that she's pregnant as well and won't be able to accompany me because um, she she lives too far she has two younger kids it just wasn't feasible so I was losing her this this kind of anchor of that HBAC pursuit I was losing Mm -hmm. her so then I was in a, a, a position of having to find new support. And I literally spoke to every midwife in Israel um, trying to find support for an HVAC because I knew I needed that, I needed that sense of safety in my home. Um, and I could only find essentially one, one woman who happened to live close to us who was willing to work with me. I met with her. we we met my partner and I met with her in a separate occasion like we had a series of meetings with her before we committed to working with her and ultimately by week I think it was about 26 we we signed on with her it was official that we were moving forward with her care so I had that cornerstone but the process of getting to her getting to her and having that was again really difficult because I I had so many rejections I had doulas who wouldn't even work with me for an HVAC so just that process of getting to her was, was really difficult and had its own sort of series of, of, of triggers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but get her on board and um, I, I sign on with a different doula because what I came to realize with the doula I had worked with in the first pregnancy is that she was really operate. I, I love her, but she was still, she was really operating from a place of, of victim consciousness and fighting the system and, and, it just wasn't effective in, in working with that environment to make it as conducive to a positive experience for, for me as the birthing person as possible. So that was a blind spot in the first, in the first pregnancy. Mm. Um, I didn't see that about her and I, I didn't see that about the private midwife I was working with as well. Um, so I worked, I signed on with a different um, doula who happens to be a friend of ours. And I felt really good about kind of this team that was coming together. Um, and the pregnancy was otherwise, it was really wonderful and beautiful. The biggest trigger I hit in the second preg- pregnancy was the, the anatomy scan at 20, at 24 weeks, whenever it is in the second trimester, I was really reluctant. and I was internally conflicted as to whether or not I should do it. And the initial midwife I was going to work with um, required it, but this midwife um, who I was working with now didn't require it so I was in this position of of 
of having to make a decision for myself as to whether or not I wanted it. And my partner really wanted it. Um, and ultimately I, I ended up doing it, but I did it for the wrong reasons. I did it for my partner. Mm-hmm. And it, that became another trigger because it wasn't, it was a, it was a really disembodied experience, a lot of disassociation. And there was a re-traumatizing element of doing something that I wasn't wholeheartedly committed to that I felt obligated to do because I had made a promise to my partner, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, so that in and of itself was, was traumatic because I had made one promise to him at one point under certain circumstances, circumstances had changed. And yet I still felt obligated to honor that promise I had made to him rather than what my body and my babe were telling me Mm -hmm. that I didn't need it, that I had the stronger resonance of the connection I had with my babe, this reassurance that I knew everything was fine. I didn't need that technological input for that reassurance, but I ultimately did it for, for my partner. And Mm -hmm. that that's a big no, no. Yeah. Obviously, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was, that was the biggest trigger probably in, in the second pregnancy. So, um, otherwise it, it, it continued, it continued beautifully. I mean, both pregnancies, I felt healthy. I didn't gain much weight. I was super active. I had the toddler running around with the second pregnancy, but I felt, um, generally pretty good, a lot more exhaustion the second round, but, but generally pretty good. Mm-hmm. So when, when my waters, well, I should take it, take it back a little bit. So it's at 37 weeks, we have a home visit with this midwife who had signed on with us. And this is when things started to to kind of crumble a bit because she revealed elements of her character and her crisis of confidence Mm -hmm. that um, I came to understand this, this wasn't going to work with her at 37 weeks. Oh, wow. She basically at our first home visit. So the first time she's seeing our home, we had had the pool set up. Like we were really, we were in it. We were in the process. She um, presented concerns that were fundamentally not evidence-based as, as reasons for revisiting the home birth plan. Basically your baby's too big. The waters are too high. She suspected polyhydramnias. Um, these were the two, two primary reasons um, that she initially introduced, but in the context of the conversation as well, it also came up that maybe my pelvis is too small and I won't be able to birth my babe because of what happened in the first pregnancy. Mm. And the minute she said that, I, I, I recognized that she was having her own internal crisis of confidence that I had a, I had cultivated a false sense of security with her mm-hmm. and that ultimately she wasn't going to be able to support me. Yeah. Um, so my confidence, my trust in her was totally eroded because she couldn't just be honest with me. She was giving me these, these half baked claims of, of, of reasons that she wouldn't be able that she ultimately wouldn't be able to support me in the home birth. Right. But I had done research to know that they're not legit. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And not to mention, too, I just want to say this should have I mean, you know, I don't know this. I don't know this person, but also just in my opinion, that should have been something that she should have had a conversation with you, like after looking at your medical history, if she wasn't if she wasn't that confident in um, in caring for you because of because of past medical circumstances, you know, like this, this, it should have been way this should this shouldn't have been something that should have been at 37 weeks agreed yeah completely completely and and i had given her a full medical history you know she she had that information yeah from the first time from the first time we met Mm -hmm. before anything this was just an initial meeting just to see if it's even a good fit for us and i shared everything with her the abuse the the gd history like everything Mm -hmm. everything she she was she was made aware of i was fully transparent with all of that um but in in retro even well even when she revealed that element of her at 37 weeks um i i had a suspicion that this was a pattern of behavior with her and she it turned out she had done the same thing to a, a girlfriend of mine as well mm-hmm. oh, wow. <laughs> so my, my my girlfriend who had been pregnant just a few months prior to me she didn't want to share her experience with this midwife and and jade my perception of her so she didn't mm-hmm. share but she essentially did the same thing to her so it's wow. a pattern of behavior yeah uh, it's, a, it's a pattern of behavior so at 37 weeks i have a midwife the only option i could find basically revealing that she's not she's not fully on board um and doesn't fully believe in me mm. um leaving me in a position of like what to do what what do I do in this situation I really don't want to go into a hospital setting I really want to birth at home I'm not comfortable I'm, I'm not fully confident at this juncture of my life um, to birth on my own to birth unassisted um, I, I wanted support and my doula wouldn't support me without some sort of medical professional there just because of her you know, professional commitment that, that she's made for herself. So what we ultimately did was we sat down with this midwife, the crisis of confidence midwife about a a week later, a few days later, I don't remember when exactly. And we discussed what, what would be possible to keep her on board basically. Mm -hmm. And what we discovered as the solution was that she would, she would feel more comfortable and confident if we brought on an OB who specializes in home births. So we went through the process of, of basically vetting the two or three home birth OBs that work in Israel mm-hmm. and decided we, we got the, we got the support of, of one of them who happens to be a good midwife. So we got him on board. She felt more, more assured, but the, the damage had already been done to the relationship. Yeah. And ironically enough, we got this OB on board and the next, the next morning, I think it was, or shortly thereafter, I think it was two days after, I don't remember exactly, but my, my waters released mm. the like literally the morning after we got this OB on board and, and had her, had the midwife a little bit more self-assured about it. So my waters released the next day and the birth journey begins, which ultimately lasts six days. I lost the OB within 24 hours of my waters releasing. He said, you need to go to the hospital. He didn't feel comfortable going beyond 24 hours. So when we lost him, we knew that we, knew that we had lost the midwife. 
but she she continued to come for visits for two or three days and just do general check-ins and whatnot mm-hmm. um but but we knew without the words being spoken that we we had lost her her support yeah. so we ended up seeking some care through a, one of the birth centers there's only one birth center really left in israel just because of the the legislation restrictions and whatnot so we started seeing this OB who has his own birth center privately um, just for daily check-ins. And this became the next kind of most viable option for, for birthing, either with him at the birth center or with him at our home. Um, but ultimately, um, the once after my waters released, everything was really, really slow to start. Um, I would have a series of surges, but it was inconsistent. It would get a little bit more intense um, at at night, but then when the day would start, everything would kind of fall back again. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of went about my business, my uh, my daily life, you know, um, having meals with my daughter, going to the beach. Like I, I tried to keep it as as quote unquote normal as possible. And one day went by, two days went by, three days went by four days went by, five days went by. It just, time kept on passing. I was, I was 38 too when the waters released and ultimately he was, it it was 39, 39 too when our son was born. Mm. Um, But what was really beautiful in that six day period was we had had this crisis of confidence with the midwife and scrambled to find an option that ultimately made her feel comfortable and when both those options fell away, I kept on having these little opportunities to reinforce the confidence I had in myself and the belief that I had in myself mm-hmm. and to really strengthen and tune into the communication I had with, with my babe, with the baby. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the blessings that, that I got from, from this midwife and that whole, the drama that it ultimately created was, was really positive because it, it, offered an opportunity to go much deeper in the process mm-hmm. of communicating with him uh, and, and myself as well. So uh, we continued with the process uh, from day to day. And um, ultimately, when, day, when we hit day five, I was getting a, a little more anxious just because we were kind of in uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. even the the OB who we had met with with the private birth center his his recommendation at that point one he, he encouraged me to take antibiotics and I was really against that mm. I wanted to do as much as I could for as long as I could to avoid antibiotics mm-hmm. um, because I had been so pumped full of antibiotics in the first birth mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the, you know, the decimation of my daughter's microbiome was not something I wanted to have a repeat of for our, for our son. Right. So I, I, I hung out in that space as long as I could, um, until, until about, until towards the end, actually, until about, it was like day, like five and a half where I started to feel an internal shift where I felt that there was something creeping in infection wise, I just mm. felt an imbalance okay. was starting to, to surface. And it turns out that my, my intuition was right because my numbers, my numbers were off. I had high, 
I had elevated um, white blood cell and there were some other ind indicators of, of an infection um, mm -hmm. when, I, when I ultimately got to the hospital. But what the concern that I had in, in going to the birth center was that he would have limited resources to ultimately support to ultimately support me so far long after my, my waters had released because the only thing he could do to help things progress faster was offer cytotech and i wasn't comfortable taking cytotech mm -hmm. so beyond that if if my labor wasn't reaching a point where it was more active this is the only remedy that he could ultimately offer so that didn't leave me feeling very comfortable so ultimately we decided to to go to the hospital that we had planned on on if we needed a hospital transfer this was the hospital we would go to it's the most VBAC friendly in in the area mm -hmm. so, so we end up going to the hospital and um what was the most beautiful part about the birth even though we ended up, I had so wanted a home birth. I had so wanted to just be in the safety of our home. Mm -hmm. Even though we landed in the hospital, the most beautiful aspect of it and probably the most healing aspect of it was the fact that there was so much of, of the second birth that mirrored the first birth. And we kept on hitting certain junctures that were a repeat of the first birth. But what was different was we were in a different environment it was an environment where we were supported. I felt seen, I felt heard, I felt respected. And ultimately that the outcome was so different, but I had to go through these, these similar junctures mm -hmm. um, and have a different sensation to kind of um, transmute what I experienced in the first birth ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, between you know the the waters having been having released in in the case of the first birth it was three days from when the waters had released in this case it was six days by the time he was born um there there was a time when i i haven't heard many stories of this but in both births i I had the experience of severe, it wasn't the surges that were, that, that ultimately got to be so painful. It was, it was the kind of peripheral pain in my ribs and my, my upper back. It wasn't, it wasn't a back labor pain. It was like in my thoracic spine that it was so painful in both, in both labors. And I had like that exact same experience in both, both births. And I, um, what was different in the second birth that I'm really grateful for is I had, because I arrived to the hospital exhausted, um, I, I agreed to an epidural just cause I needed, I needed the rest ultimately. And what ultimately happened about like 10 hours into the epidural is that same pain that I had experienced in the first birth resurfaced again in the ribs and my lower back. Mm -hmm. And all they could tell me to do was just increase the epidural, but it wasn't, the epidural wasn't targeting. It wasn't getting to those areas. It was peripheral to, to my uterus being hypertonic. It was so, mm -hmm. my uterus was so hype. You know, I think that's what it was that it might, I had so much fluid. My fluids had, had restored. I did have polyhydramnias. Mm -hmm. if, if, if you want to 
honor that diagnosis. My, my levels, my AFI levels were at 37 mm-hmm. or 37 or 27, 27, um, which technically qualifies as polyhydramnios. So I did have a lot of fluid in my, in my womb, but when I arrived at the hospital, I had had a release of fluids for five days at that point. But I think that I started to, to retain more of that fluid. And it was that fluid that was causing the, the pain. Mm. Um, but what I decided that was different with the second birth was that I got off the epidural I, after having been on it for, I think it was about 10 hours. I said, I need, I need a break from this. I need to get off the bed. I need to move. I'm, I'm a dancer. I'm a, I'm a mover. I have been since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so having to be confined to a bed for so long is like hell for me. Yeah. Even though I still could feel my legs with the epidural, I had full movement of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just needed to get off the bed, needed a change of scenery. And ultimately we, we stopped the epidural and got in the shower. I was in the shower for almost an hour. Mm-hmm. And then um, the, the pain again was, it, I felt better in the shower, but shortly after the pain again in the rib cage and the back would resurface again. That was the real pain. It wasn't the surges. The surges were the easy part. I must have had like a thousand, a thousand surges over the, the five and a half days. Mm-hmm. That was the easy part. It was the peripheral pain that was so challenging. Um, but what was amazing with the second birth was that I one of the kind of retrospective lessons I had taken from the first birth was, and and I had be- beaten myself up about it a little bit was I had consented to an epidural as well with the first birth, just because I was exhausted, same reasons. I was exhausted. I had an asymmetrical labor pattern in that first birth. That was one difference. But um, one thing I regretted about it was not asking, no one ever mentioning or not even thinking that I could stop the epidural and move and give give our daughter a chance to re reposition. Mm-hmm. Because the, the hospital staff, that hospital environment was not conducive. They were not supportive of, of movement at all with an epidural. Mm. They wouldn't let me sideline release. I could, heaven forbid, I should try forward leaning, you know, forward leaning inversion. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they wouldn't let me do anything other than lie on my back or my side that wasn't creating um, the fetal D cells. Mm-hmm. So fast forward the two and a half years to this birth and I'm in an environment that's super supportive of it. So I'm, even with the epidural, I'm mobilizing. My doula is a spinning baby's trainer. Mm-hmm. So she's super well-versed in it. We were, we were super active with the sideline, with the forward-leaning inversion. We did variations of it. We did as much as we could with, you know, interjected with periods of rest as well. So we were really attentive to that. But we were giving him a chance to, to do what he needed to do because he was still mm-hmm. fairly high. He was still yeah. negative too. Mm. He was still at negative two. And my daughter had been stuck at negative two until the cesarean ultimately as well. Oh, wow. She was negative, negative two asynclitic. Mm. So, um, where was I? Yeah, (laughs) actually, could you really, well, no, it's okay. I was going to ask you, could you actually very briefly, um, just for listeners that don't know, um, could you explain to them what you mean by negative two, negative one station? Yeah, I I know what you mean, but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, sure. 
Well, I became through the experience of my first <laughs> pregnancy and the second I really became a birth nerd. Yeah, and I, totally. I really, I really immersed myself in it, uh, really. So, so negative two refers to just the position of the baby within the pelvis. Mm-hmm. That it's basically, it's a one of, it's a high station. It's at the top of the pelvis. And then you descend further mm-hmm. as you go to negative one. Zero is like towards the mid of the pelvis. And as you hit the positive numbers, you're getting closer to, to the exit points, basically. Yes. So both, <laughs> both of my babes were stuck in a, in a high position for a long time, mm-hmm. for a long time, basically. Yeah. So we, we did physically and physiologically, we did as much as we could to support babes positioning. Yes. Um, and with the second round, the second pregnancy experience at, at this different hospital, it was like night and day because I had a supportive environment to do what I felt I needed to do, what my body needed to do to support this babe. Mm-hmm. So to have that experience that was so different than the first was in and of itself really remarkable and powerful and should just be the standard. This should not be, Yeah. it should not be an anomaly. It should. It absolutely should. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Completely. Completely. Mm -hmm. I I agree wholeheartedly. So, so we were doing as much movement as possible. I was in lunges. I was, I was, you name it as much as I I could do it. I was, I was doing it on the framework of, of my bed. Mm -hmm. And after when thing, things really shifted after the shower, that was the best thing I could have done because after the shower, the pain resurfaced again. Um, as I, as I mentioned in the rib cage in the back, that was the worst pain. So I ultimately, I got the epidural reinstalled so that I could rest again. Um, even though, well, even though I think the epidural had some correlation to m- making the pain worse in those areas anyway, but I was able to rest. This is, this is what was important. I was able to rest again. And when I woke up, I think about an hour later, the midwife that we were working with suggested just a small dose of Pitocin, the smallest possible dose of Pitocin. I'd been in the hospital almost, almost 24 hours at that point. Mm -hmm. And I reluctant, well, I reluctantly agreed to the Pitocin. This was after Actually, we had had an, another conversation with the like lead OB. I think he might've been head of the department. He had come in and had a conversation with us with his back standing against the wall, his arms crossed and basically presenting Pitocin as the only option, either that or cesarean because my waters had, had released for, for in their book, um, over 24 hours because had I been honest with them, I want to know what would have happened I think it would have been a very different experience mm-hmm. so I've never never been one to lie to, to medical powers that be my my yeah. father works is a clinician and works in that environment I've never been one to be dishonest but that seemed a situation relevant <laughs> relevant to be dishonest so mm-hmm. so I was but um yeah. So we had this negative, that was one of the more negative interactions we had was with this OB who literally spoke to me with his arms crossed and hardly had an ounce of compassion or presence to his, his demeanor, demeanor at all. And he didn't, mm-hmm. 
the other thing that shocked me too is that I had multiple, these OBs, it was all the OBs, they wouldn't stand directly in front of me. They would stand off to the side and I would have to ask them one, to introduce themselves and two, to just come and stand in front of me, like be human with me and just have a conversation where I can see you eye to eye. Yeah. It's just basic communication principles that are so lacking with these highly trained medical professionals that it should just be standard. It should just be standard. Seriously. Seriously. Bedside manner is, I mean, it's, it's everything truly, especially when you're in such a vulnerable position like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, it's not even bedside manner. It's, it's just, just be human with well, me. Well, yeah, yeah, you know? totally, like- totally, totally. But I mean, I guess like more so just like, you know, I mean, I guess there there's a way to engage with someone, especially in birth. There's a way to engage with someone where like, you know, you're telling them the facts, but you're not you're essentially I mean, you know, to be blunt, you're not being an asshole about it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I think especially when you're in such a wide open state, such as labor, you know, I I think I think it's I I think there should there should come a sensitivity to it. You know, there should be there should come like a yeah, like a sensitivity to, you know, whom you're to to the mom and like who you're speaking to and, you know, to navigate from there. Cause you know, this is, yeah. Cause like, you know, we obviously birth is such a mystery. We never know how it's going to go or how it's going to happen, but also like, you know, there's, there's a way that you can approach, you know, your, your patient or your client, whatever with grace and not, and again, you know, not have this like, you know, you know, begruntled demeanor, I guess in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's stepping off, uh, stepping off a high horse and and really just meeting, meeting this person before you where they are with, with humility and with respect. Yeah. I mean, Marin's, Marin's post today was really beautiful where she spoke of, of reaching, remembering humility with, with Rumi's birth. Yeah. (laughs) And that, you know, bringing humility into that, into the birth space as a medical professional, as a doula, whatever, a birth keeper, whatever role you play is so, so important Yeah, because it, it, it goes hand in hand with reverence and just, and a, and a certain presence and being in that mystery. Yeah. Absolutely. Not just a birth, but of this person who's sitting in front of you. Yeah. And in my case, you know, I, I carry a history of, of, of sexual abuse and I'm, I'm not an anomaly. This is, yeah. that's the tragedy. My story yeah. is not, my story is not unique. This is the tragedy. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's not, it's not addressed. I mean, one of the, one of the most challenging things in the, in the first pregnancy was the hospital we had regrettably chosen for care. Every time I would go in, I would have to mention the history Mm. because they didn't have it collected the way that their, their computer system was organized was it didn't transfer to, to different different departments or different doc. I don't know what it was, but I had to mention it. Like they didn't, no Mm. one, it wasn't consistent in the, the standard of care I received. I had wow. to, I had to inform whoever I was working with that I had that history. Whereas with this hospital, everyone knew my history and they were super respect, respectful um, in every interaction that I had, especially with the midwives, the OBs less so, but I was blessed with three shifts of, of incredibly kind, compassionate and present 
midwives Good. who who made this VBAC pre- made this VBAC possible. And mm. what was really beautiful is this third this third midwife that I had the final the final shift ultimately. Um, what she ended up revealing just after our son was born was how how powerful the birth had been for her because she's also a survivor of sexual abuse mm-hmm. and she's she's been through the process she she understood where i was coming from and it was even more powerful when we had that shared history but secondly it was also really powerful for her because this powerful for her because this was her last birth this was her last shift and i was her last birth because she was leaving she was leaving midwifery it was her last shift so she ended she ended her midwifery career with us mm-hmm. and there was a there was a healing element in in that respect mm-hmm. so that was pretty powerful yeah but, totally um but to to come back and kind of wrap up the the birth of our son um the midwife, this midwife who, sh- who we had the shared history with and, and whatnot, who, we, who ultimately helped to, to receive our babe, suggested just a small dose of Pitocin, which I, I ultimately agreed to, um, even though I was a bit reluctant just because of, of the reaction we had had in the first pregnancy where her heart rate would go down in response to the Pitocin. And um, and my uterus had gotten so hypertonic that those are my two big concerns. Plus I had the, I had the cesarean scar that I was considering, but I ultimately consented to a super small dose of Pitocin. I, I rested for another like 45 minutes to an hour. And when I woke up, I consented to this midwife to check me, even though I was really, um, it was, it's, it was too triggering for me. Um, but I consented to her checking mm-hmm. and she informed me that I was 10 centimeters at that point and that I'm in a position to, to prepare to push. Cause I had started to feel pressure at that point. So she, mm-hmm. when she checked me, it really dilated. And shortly after I, I started the, the, the process of, of pushing him and pushing him out. And it was, mm-hmm. It was incredible because everyone talks about this the transition period as having kind of a, a doubt elements of doubt to it where you know mm-hmm. you don't you don't think you can do this whatever it may be but that was mm-hmm. I had the opposite like I had been in in some semblance of labor for so long at that point when I had the reassurance of knowing that my body had fully consented to opening that I had had that expansion that was like, I was in a position where I was like, I'm ready to do the work now. I had absolutely no doubt. I don't think I've ever been so focused or determined in my life. When I realized that I was fully dilated, that's when I went into like go mode. Um, and I, I started, I, I just, I, I was so attuned to body and babe. And I would just follow his lead in terms of the position that I needed to be in. I did a lot of vocalizing, a lot of um, just, just moving, just listening to my body's impulses and cues and a lot of, a lot of sounding. I didn't do sounding. I didn't have an opportunity to do sounding in the first labor really with, with our daughter. I didn't, I didn't have an opportunity to get into that space. So, so, but I did with our son and it was so 
beautiful and it was so powerful because there was such a synchronicity to to being with him in that respect i would be in one position and feel feel the pressure and feel him coming down and then that would dissipate and i would intuitively know what position i would then need to change to to mm -hmm. better support him and it was it was just so being in the moment being fully present and and fully connected to him following his lead and that was one thing that was missing from the first labor um i i had this vision of what i thought it would look like and when it didn't go that way i stopped listening to her to my daughter at some point but it was the opposite with this second birth i was fully committed to listening and being with him and following his lead and that's ultimately what led to the success of of the birth is is he was he was born about 45 minutes after i had been checked and and fully fully dilated and i experienced you know i had the epidural but i could still i could feel everything i was fully mobile i was i was lunging i was doing the prayer position i i was i was moving beautifully and i could feel him coming coming through and that moment i can still feel it now through my fingertips that moment where i first felt his head was probably one of the most beautiful of my entire life mm. because i had been working two and a half years to get to that point to prove to myself that i could trust and believe in my body in in a deeply embodied way even though I had, for the last decade of my life, I've, I've been studying two particular methods here in Israel, a form of bodywork created by a man named Ilan Lev and a, a movement language, a, a form, it's not even, it's, it's dance, but it's a movement language created by a man named Ohad Naharin. He's the director of, of Batsheva Dance Company, a very famous international company. Those two men were ultimately the reason why I came to Israel. So this last decade, I'd been immersing myself in these two, they're beautiful, but they're fundamentally created by white men. And I thought that I would have the tools I needed in that first labor to navigate birth mm -hmm. through, through the tools and the language and the, the somatic you know, poetry I had absorbed through these these languages and these ways of being in the world mm -hmm. but they ultimately failed me mm -hmm. on some level they didn't they didn't serve the a deeply embodied feminine yeah that ultimately you need to have access to to birth and i i made it a, a, i was so committed to to finding that deeply embodied feminine for myself in that this last pregnancy in this pregnancy with our son because because i knew the failings of of what had happened before it had to be a language that that was mine that mm -hmm. that had a womb intelligence to it mm -hmm. that had the power of creation behind it and and the womb is the seed of that power so this whole pregnancy it was a matter of connecting to that I didn't, I, I didn't take, I didn't study any methods. I was, I was leading, I, I was following my, our, our, I didn't know our, our baby's gender. I was just following their lead through mm -hmm. the pregnancy. And there was so much intelligence. All I needed to know 
came from that connection I fundamentally had and cultivated with him. Whereas I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have that confidence in the first pregnancy and I wish I did. I wish I did. Mm-hmm. But that, that was, I, I learned what I needed from that first pregnancy mm-hmm. to ultimately serve me in this, the second one. So, so when that midwife had her crisis of confidence, all these little junctures were invitations to really connect on, on a much, much deeper level. And yes. so that, and it ultimately got me to that point where I could feel his head. And there was such a moment of triumph in that because I had gone through such a, a journey, mm-hmm. such a, an internal journey to get to that point. So, um, the, I mean, he, he was born within like 45 minutes of pushing and laid on my chest. And I just, I just sobbed mm-hmm. tears of absolute surrender and joy and tr- like victory, like such victory that I, that I did this. I fucking did it. Mm-hmm. We, we fucking did it. Mm-hmm. When there was so much lack of support and so much fear so much fear in the process of getting to that point and it's not necessary mm-hmm. it doesn't serve anyone I, it doesn't and i think there's a, there's a certain tragedy in what the midwife revealed and i think it's an all too common reality are these these fears of the system that that have them controlled as well and in her case it was the polyhydramnius and a, a babe measuring quote-unquote big yeah. but mm. what the irony the irony though is that she thought babe was measuring at about three five at 37 weeks 3.5 kilos sorry mm-hmm. it's, everything's in kilos here 3.5 kilos here or 3.5 kilos at 36 37 weeks and when he was born at 39 weeks he was 4.04 kilograms which i don't remember what that translates to pounds but he was a he was a large quote-unquote larger baby but he was much larger than he than she anticipated but i birthed him between my legs i did it i did it you did my pelvis my pelvis is fucking fine thank you very much yeah (laughs) really so so those kind of my two birth stories in in somewhat nutshells i guess yeah well heather thank you so much. Um, and I am so genuinely happy for you that you got your V back. Um, and that in the second experience, you got more support. Um, and that you did, you pushed your baby out of out of your body. And yeah, you fucking did it. That's yeah. Fuck, fuck. Yeah. I'm yeah. so happy for you. Yeah. And is there yeah. any last parting words of wisdom that you would like to leave our listeners with today? Uh, I would offer an invitation to deeply connect to yourself and babe. I don't think there's enough um, support for or or body of knowledge in, in mainstream culture for perinatal psychology. 
and connecting with the intelligence of babe. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. And I think that holds the key for, for changing birth on earth as we know it right now mm -hmm. is that is cultivating that communication with babe. Really? I think there's power in that. And also just listening to your body, I think is so powerful and eliminating the, the kind of crutch of all these external voices and hierarchies and authorities that, that we tend to pander to as a general rule, especially as women, uh, we have a certain conditioning to, to kind of um, not surrender, but, but follow, follow those external authorities and pregnancy and birth are an opportunity to release those tethers completely, like matrix style, just release them out completely. Mm -hmm. Completely, awesome. like re recombobulate, let it happen. Thank you so much, Heather. It has been such a, such a joy and a privilege and such an honor to have you here today and to allow me to hold space for you. I'm, I'm genuinely so grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And thank you to the Indie Birth community for the support um, that ultimately I garnered from it through, through both pregnancies. It's a really phenomenal, phenomenal community. Mm -hmm. And for those who are first time listeners, welcome, immerse yourself in as much of the content as you can, because it will deeply serve you. Even if you're not pregnant, just in life, it will deeply serve you. So absolutely. And I just want to actually add to that, too. There's also a really awesome uh community on the mighty networks platform and all you got to do is just search um indie birth and then yeah sign up from there um thank you so much heather yeah such my a pleasure treat. yeah my pleasure thank you my mighty womb is lined with tiger's eye and surges with power unparalleled my mighty womb pairs rage with equal parts dignity and grace while dancing with lunar forces, my mighty womb embodies both fierce warrior and humble healer. My mighty womb employs its own shamanic wisdom and apologizes for none of her strength. My mighty womb is honored and protected by broken yet loyal ancestors who whispered to me, it ends with you. My mighty womb trumps your false prophets of patriarchy and elevates the consciousness of all who behold her and deeply listen to her songs. My mighty womb is a siren whose voice is rooted in all wombs. My mighty womb radiates far beyond this body and courts the universe with her smile. My mighty womb is as old as the cosmos that bore her and finds her power in emptying because she has known infinite fullness. My mighty womb folds for no one. She simply expands and rushes in rhythms only Venus and Kali understand. My mighty womb speaks in ancient tongues that melt the undeserving into liquid mercury. My mighty womb, my mighty womb. Thank you so much for listening. Storytelling is a profound agent of change, one that has the ability to plant seeds of inspiration, introspection, and beyond. If you have an empowering birth story that you would like to share on our podcast, please head over to IndieBirth.org forward slash birth warrior to send your submissions. 
That's IndieBirth.org forward slash birth warrior. Hope you have a beautiful week wherever you are in the world. Until next time, friends.